Well, hello again, everyone. Tony Payne here. Welcome to another edition of Two Ways News. Really great to have you with us. This week's edition is a special episode. It was recorded in front of a live audience at the Nexus Conference just last week, held here in Sydney. That's a conference for evangelical ministry workers to stretch each other, to fellowship together around his word. And as part of the conference, Philip and I had a lengthy discussion about our history here in Sydney of seeking to stand for the word of God and tremble at the word of God in response to various issues and controversies that have compromised or challenged our ability to do that. As you'll soon hear, it was a wide-ranging and really quite fascinating conversation about all manner of subjects, including materialism and how that has been a huge problem for us, feminism and the challenge of men and women in ministry and how to work through those debates, the sad conflicts that happened with the charismatic movement, the problem of academia and scholarship and its continual opposition to the preaching of the Word of God and more besides. If the conversation whets your appetite for the rest of the content that was delivered at the Nexus Conference, there are a couple of ways you can access that. You can go to the Nexus Conference website, that's nexusconference.sydney, and also the Australian Church Record is going to be publishing editions or versions of the different talks as articles in their regular journal, you can go to www.australianchurchrecord, all one word, australianchurchrecord.net for all the details. Well, without any further ado, let's get into the conversation. Well, good afternoon, everybody. The title for today's, uh, this afternoon's discussion has got to do with what does it mean to tremble at the word in the heat of the battle? And the presupposition, I guess, of that is that if the posture of the gospel minister is to tremble at the word, as we've heard this morning, and to preach it boldly, that that will inevitably bring us into conflict. It'll bring us into conflict primarily, of course, with ourselves, in the sense that um, our desires, like all sinful people, our desires are always contrary to the desires of the spirit. The flesh lusts always contrary to the spirit, as the old versions put it. Uh, And so there will always be a battle within ourselves to tremble at the word. But of course, it means it will also bring us into conflict with others because the desires of the flesh are strong in other people as well. And so what I wanted to do with Philip over this next half an hour or so, and we'll range over a range of different subjects, and then there'll be some time for open Q&A, is just to talk about the nature of that fight, the nature of that battle as it's unfolded over the, you know, the decades and decades and decades that Philip has been <laughs> ministering. You've... I forgive you. Okay. You're almost, you're almost in the territory of being able to wheel out the first 50 years of the hardest, like uh, Chapo used to. Yes, yes, that's right. I'm a walking history lesson. <laughs> yes. uh, and so I'm going to be talking with Philip about some of the big issues that have come up in his ministry life, uh, the battles that have been fought in our circles here in Sydney and beyond, and to see what we can learn from that, and there'll be an opportunity for you to ask questions as well. And I want to start, Philip, with, at the broadest kind of level. In your experience... What teachings of God's word have been hardest to tremble at for us as evangelicals in Sydney over the past 50 years that have, in a sense, most put us out of step with the world or most brought us into conflict with the world? Uh, Or most put us in conflict with ourselves in our failure. Will do? Okay. Uh, Materialism. Um, Define materialism for us? Well, it's philosophical materialism. There's nothing in this world other than this world. But it's... uh, It's been taught to us in every level of thought, mainly because of the material wealth that we have produced. Our 
our forefathers who came back from the Second World War and recreated the economy of Australia have recreated one of the wealthiest communities in the history of mankind, and we don't know what to do with it. We, we've more, got more money than sense, and so the philosophical materialism uh, keeps on being demonstrated to be uh, true in practice. Just uh, uh, science is accepted because science has such terrific technology. Most people don't understand the philosophy of science, but they sure like their gadgets. And if that's what science has given us, then science must be true. And so in the 1960s, if you want to go back into the dim dark, uh, by the way, it's important we do it, have a little bit of history lessons too, because we sit in a situation um, which we've inherited. And if we don't know what we've inherited and how and how it came about, we're very likely to forget our inheritance and lose it, the good bits. But the 60s, the science ruled. Everything was science. When I went to university in the early 1960s, every subject was a science. We, I did history one. This is the science of history. Uh, I, I mean, all mine were art subjects, but, you know, even, they even called economics science. <laughs> you know, I mean, the dismal science, but science. I mean, everything had to be scientific, you know, because unless it was a science, it was no truth. Uh, and so how did that affect us Christianly? I had a big fight with the president of the, Christ, of the Evangelical Union at Sydney University, which really got me removed from the Evangelical Union because the president did not believe that um, prayer could be answered because for God to answer prayer would involve him interfering with the scientific natural processes of the world and God can't do that. So you have an, a, a man who believes in prayer kicked out of the EU because the president doesn't believe in prayer because he couldn't face the intellectual questions of the scientific era. It's been a period, the last 60, 70 years, has been a period of, of massive social change, quite cataclysmic social change, really, mm -hmm. a, a more profound social change, really, than, than we've experienced in, in our national history, probably apart oh, from wartime. Time. Yes. Wartime, there's huge social changes. But this has been in peacetime, and I... I cannot perceive where there's been other periods of peacetime in any nation where there has been as much social change. So, 1970, there was a futurist uh, wrote a book called uh, Future Shock, in which he was saying that just as people go through culture shock, in the next few years, people are going to go through future shock. And I, when he read it, I thought, this is a bit of a strange thesis, and the rest of it, absolutely true. So it's the changes that have happened in the last 70 years... You know, just think back to when did the internet start? You know, what was life before computers? What was life before... The numbers of changes have just been astronomical. And many older people are just not coping with it at all. Um, Philosophical materialism, you're saying, was kind of the, the bedrock opposing worldview that generated all kinds of things. One of them, of course, was a sexual revolution and a whole new way we thought about men and women... In what sort of ways has that competing vision of what men and women are, who men and women should be, in other words, the feminist and the post-feminist kind of phases we've lived through, in what sense has that been a battle for us, not only with the world but within our own um, fellowship? Well, it's got to, it all got to do with money and, and wealth, um, that uh, suddenly we discovered with the technology of birth control um, that the way of organising family life 
And so with the technologies available, women could go to work in ways that they couldn't previously because households... I grew up in a house that didn't have a refrigerator, didn't have a washing machine, right? did not have a, a vacuum cleaner. Right? Can you understand, you know, the life of how you did housework in the 50s and 60s was just totally and completely different to anything you could imagine now. Whereas we've got all these electronic slaves now to uh, do, do things, you know, like dishwashing machines. I, I could have about 10 slaves working in my house now, all simultaneously. Uh, previously, I just had my mother. <laughs> yeah? And that change was just so huge, but it meant women could go to work. Once you start having two incomes in a family, then you have competition for house prizes. The, the feminists have created the housing problem of today. Right? That, but most people won't say that. It's politically incorrect to say it. But once everyone's got two incomes, then one income can no longer afford to buy a house. So then everybody has to have two incomes to be able to afford to buy houses. And so the house prices have gone up for no good reason at all. And so if our economy's got to be working properly, we've got to bring more migrants in. So instead of having our own children and taking 20 years to grow them into workers, we get instant workers by just having migration. And so we've changed all the... But the thing that drives it all the time is materialism. Right? The thing that really matters is keeping this economy going. If I can demonstrate that this particular thing brings 100000 or $1 million into the community, we'll have it. Like Pride Weekend. Hmm. Whatever it is that's going to bring money in, that's a good thing. So we, we just... Our whole mindset is materialistic. The Christians, we get washed with it. <laughs> So we've got to have it. We can't afford house parties anymore. Do you know why we can't afford or conferences anymore? They've all got dishwashing machines. They've all now got en-suites. They've all got... So we've raised up the levels of our comfort and accommodation, but then we're now saying, oh, they cost too much, so we can't go. You're saying these things come into our fellowship. They, we, we get washed along with the changes in society. Um, and, of course, one of the ones that came into our fellowship and was a huge um, subject of debate and fights for many years was the place of women within ministry and especially the women's ordination debate. But many of those debates and much of what happened then is, is before many of us were even born. Can you tell us what was the nature of that battle and why was it a battle over the word? Well, the problem with us as evangelicals is we do not tremble at the word of God. So we do not start with the word of God and work out what we want to do. We just do what we're doing until somebody brings an opposition view and then we become defensive and we've got to fight to just maintain where we were before. Um, it, it's like an Englishman batting against Shane Warne. You, know, you knew he was lost as soon as he stepped back instead of stepping forward. The longer he batted... I can see there are people who don't understand this. I'm sorry. <laughs> so we just put ourselves in the defensive mode. Now... The particular presenting problem that came up was the issue of the ordination of women. That was the presenting problem. And we had to fight. That's where we decided to stand and fight. But we had real difficulties with it because the doctrine of ordination is not all that strong in the scriptures. Well, who gets ordained to what? And why are deacons different to presbyters? And What can presbyters do that deacons can't do? And It was a very shaky place to stand and fight but we knew we could not continue just to take feminism on board because it is anti-god feminism is an expression of human sinfulness 
the, the, the whole analysis is completely and utterly non-Christian. And so we talk in power imbalance. Come straight out of Marxism. Now, I'm not a right-winger, but I know Marx when I hear it. And that's Marx. I studied Marx at university. That's Marxism. As soon as you start talking about power imbalance, that's what you're talking about. What the Bible talks about is sin. That's what we're talking about. And power imbalance means it's all the problem of patriarchy. Well, God is the father from whom all fatherhood is named. And you're going to be anti-patriarchal? And power? Power's... Power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. You're quoting a Roman Catholic when you say that, by the way. Don't know if you know that. It was the first Vatican Council in 1870 discussing papal infallibility where that came out. And when you say that, you're actually saying something that's anti-Christian because who is all-powerful if it's not God? Are you going to say he's therefore totally corrupted? It's not power that corrupts. It's sin that uses power corruptly. All power does is enable you to sin more effectively. So you've got to start with a Christian view and understand the world rather than, oh, they're saying things I don't like. How can I defend what I'm saying? And so we're always on the back foot on the ordination of women. Through the 80s, there was an acceptance of women to be deacons rather than deaconesses. I wasn't in sin at that time. And I still don't understand what the debate was about. Uh, it's like you're not allowed to call an actress an actress. She's an actor. It, that kind of language change, of course, Orwell told us the way to change minds is change language. And we're having our language changed all the time to fit into a totally different philosophical system. And we think we can accept those and it won't hurt, but we're just being edged further and further into the place where we're drawing the line and saying, oh, but we can't now, because the line now is being drawn on homosexuality and way, way further down the list. But the Diocese of Sydney fought huge battles all through the 90s, 80s, late 80s through the 90s, um, until um, Harry Goodhue declared a moratorium on the debate. We were so ripped apart by these terrible debates uh, that we had a moratorium. But as soon as the moratorium was over, back came the debate. Every session of synod was dominated by the issue of whether we would ordain women. And there was constant accommodation system. So, yeah, we will ordain them as deacons. Well, we've now got them as deacons. Let's ordain them as presbyters. Well, you can't ordain them as presbyters. Why? Well, they can't be rectors. Okay, let's have a new system where you can be a presbyter but not a rector. And so then you have to find out, well, at what point do you draw the line? Once you start with a question at what point do you draw the line, you have joined an ancient club <laughs> called Pharisees because that's how they dealt with the word of God, the law of God. How far can I go and still claim to be biblical? That mindset is Pharisaic denial of the Bible. The person who trembles at the word of God says the exact reverse. What does God say? How can I push that out to every area of life? It's... it's Read Matthew chapter 5. It's the opposite of the way in which synodically we dealt with the issue. Mercifully, those big debates were able to hold the line. And the Diocese of Sydney now stands different to the, most of the rest of the world, but considerably safeguarded 
we don't have the huge debate here in Sydney on the acceptance of homosexuality. Why don't we have that debate? Well, because we held the line over here. But if we'd given up on that line over there, you would have that debate now. I had an interesting Methodist man in England and a lovely fella. He said to me, he was all told by his friends that, uh, you know, we, we will give in, we'll give in, but once the subject of homosexuality comes, we'll all stand firm. And so he said, once it came in, he said, I stood firm and everybody took two steps back. And there I was, and he was now an ex-Methodist minister. Graham Goldsworthy said to us that just as the liberal world was climbing out of JEDP bog, the evangelicals were jumping in. I'm going to say the same thing. Just as the, the non-Christians are climbing out of the fe- feminist sexual revolution bog, evangelicals are jumping in. Mary Harrington has written a book, Feminism Against Progress. Louise Perry has written one, The Case Against Sexual Revolution. These women are non-Christians. These women are atheists. They're quite opposed to Christianity. But they have been looking at what's happened in the last 50, 60 years, and they say the worst thing that's ever happened to women was sexual revolution. The worst thing that's happened to women has been feminism. But it has actually caused untold damage. And both of them are now saying what we've got to go back to is marriage. Marriage between a man and a woman where you raise children. And stay together. And stay together. Very important. Very stay together. And so here you get the non-Christian atheists who are actually finally waking up to the damage that has been done by feminism and by sexual revolution. And we've got Christians who are still trying to accommodate to feminism and the sexual revolution. And uh, my, my brothers and sisters, do not go that way. Tremble at God's word. Teach that. Learn that. Live that. Don't get sucked into the way the world goes. You were saying earlier that... He still hasn't learned how to interrupt me. No, no, I'm I'm working on it. I'm working on it. (laughs) Just sitting here enjoying the ride, Philip. Yeah, okay. Is there anything else you'd like to say? (laughs) (laughs) You mentioned earlier that philosophical materialism has sort of been underneath a lot of this. But, of course, one of the big movements of the last 50, 60 years has been a a very kind of anti-materialistic movement in the sense of the charismatic movement, the Pentecostal movement, which you wouldn't say that was a materialistic movement, is it almost a reaction against? Because that's been another big area in which you personally, I know, have had lots of conflict. The Christianised culture of Australia collapsed in the 1960s. The easy marker is 1959, Billy Graham came, 150,000 up to hear him in Sydney. Uh, 1963, the Beatles came, 150,000 turned up to listen to them. They were a bunch of degenerates, by the way who were degenerating the youth of Australia. They, you know, nice music, etc. but it was actually degeneration. So where does the charismatic movement okay. and so its... In that time, it's... churches collapsed. I knew I, ha- I put that in for a reason. I just can't remember the reasons. In that time, churches collapsed. Youth groups collapsed. The youth fellowships of hundreds of people, because there was nothing else organised by anybody else except churches, but they all disappeared. Everybody in the Christian circles who wanted to continue and all then had to reinvent themselves. And they reinvented themselves in different ways. One of the great reinventions was the charismatics. They came in the 1950s, early 60s, uh, through the 60s basically, I think it's best to say it, as neo-Pentecostal. The Pentecostal, of course, was back in the uh, First World War period of time. 
This was the new Pentecostalism that didn't separate itself out from denominations but called upon the mainstream denominations to embrace spiritual regeneration in terms of the second blessing of uh, being empowered by the Spirit, baptised by the Spirit, uh, marked by speaking in tongues. They worked at undermining all the mainstream churches. They were there, they would go to churches and they would call upon people. There's one church I know where they said, all those who have been baptised of the Spirit, stand up and move over this side of the building. And all those who haven't yet been speaking in tongues, sit on this side of the building. And they called upon people to change sides. It was an evangelistic enterprise to, to completely transform. But they were doing it because they thought we had conceded to materialism and atheism. And many liberal churches had conceded to materialism and atheism. They were right. Their solution was completely wrong. And so that continued to the late 1980s when the Temple Trust declared the churches were beyond redemption and set, they left all the mainstream churches and set up Hillsongs and uh, Christian Life... Christian Life Centres, Christian City Churches, yes, those kind of new independent centers, charismatic new churches. independent charismatic churches started in 1988, 1989, something like that. Uh, and they just left us behind to, to wallow in our death as they kicked off it in the other direction. And so that period from the 60s through the... It was it's about 1990. Um, it was life or death inside a denominational church as to whether you're going to imbibe the new, the new way or not. In around about, I don't know what the year, uh, Mr. a third wave came of charismatics, which was... Um, you're thinking of John Wimber? John in, Wimber, in who brought the third wave in... Late 80s, early 90s. Uh, and this was to accept what John Stott had written, that it's not a baptism in the spirit, that's actually conversion, and you don't have to speak in tongues, but you do need miracles. Without miracles, you, you haven't got God. The sign of me... So just think about that. It's the opposite to materialism. We're all materialistic in our philosophical thinking, but here's a miracle. That shows our thinking is wrong. So power evangelism was an important part. And again, um, he then attacked the churches in particular and had conferences out here. And uh, again, we had to fight that this you went and You went and met with John Wimber, I remember. did, one of the loveliest of men. Hmm. He was a pianist for the Righteous Brothers. There you go. Those of you who remember That's the Righteous Brothers. That's a big, big, big call. Some of you think the Righteous Brothers, were they part of the Beatles, were they? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> But in, in speaking, in a sense, against the charismatic movement, in preaching for evangelicalism and for the centrality of the word, not an easy thing to do in that climate in which any criticism of the charismatic movement was seen as a divisive and awful thing to do. Um, how did that play out in your own preaching and, and how did that work? The word of God is divisive. That is the nature of it. That is the gospel. You know, is a, what that passage in Paul in 2 Corinthians, you know, the sweet smell of, of life to those who are being saved and the stench of death to those who are perishing. You, you can't be a gospel preacher without being a divisive person. Um, Jesus didn't come to bring peace but to bring division. And uh, you can't call upon people to repent and at the same time affirm that this culture is right. I mean, if this culture is right, then what are you repenting of? And so you, you will always be divisive. 
It's not good to desire it. It's not good to do things in order to divide. That, of course, is the work of the flesh in, uh, in Galatians 5, is, you know, that kind of thing. But if you do abide by the word of God and tremble at it so that in, you t- in your teaching you can do nothing other than be held captive to the word of God, you will divide opinions. And people, they don't like the message, so they shoot the messenger. When Jesus recruits disciples at the end of Mark 8, he doesn't promise them a good superannuation payout, does he? You know, I mean, that's that, well, eternal life, that's a good one. But, uh, you know, that's, that's not what it's about. It's not about, you know, you've got to take up your cross and follow me, right? Unless you lose your life for my sake and the gospel. Uh, unless we recruit people in with the promise of persecution, we're doing them a disservice and we'll do the gospel a disservice as well. I remember in, um, in the context of often your opposition to the charismatic movement and speaking um, against charismatic theology, uh, at one point, I believe you were warned by a fellow clergyman here in Sydney that you were a false prophet and that you would have your ministry taken from you within 12 months if you didn't stop preaching against the charismatic movement. Yep. Not a question, that was just a comment. <laughs> Here is is the word of God. You see, you've got to trust the word of God and tremble at the word of God. When someone challenges you, you've got to look back and see whether what you've done is right. You don't just assume what you've done is right. If people say, no, Philip, you're wrong, then I I owe it to them and to God and to myself to look back to see if it is wrong. But what we were saying at that time, I didn't believe was wrong. And then the devil came to me for the next 12 months. You know, that was the first cancer scare I ever had, happened then. And then there was a particular fight that took place within the congregation that wasn't. And so you start, and see, the devil is the great accuser, isn't he? He's the great liar. So you've just been given this great lie, your life is going to be destroyed and your ministry is going to be taken away from you and then suddenly things start to happen. And you've got to have faith in the word of God at this point because if what I've done is right and spoken right, it's right. I think the challenge of the charismatic movement, we'll move off this now, but it's interesting just to reflect in closing that the challenge of the charismatic movement over those 30, 40 years was hard because it kept changing face. There was a different issue, a different way in which essentially an experiential or more mystical approach to encountering God was the focus. At one point it was the baptism in the spirit, then it was words of knowledge, then it was healings, then it was the Toronto blessing. And challengingly, I think, for all of us today, just connecting with what we said before with Philip, uh, Percival, uh, today I think the challenge is with music. I think the experiential, mystical view of what music and worship is has subtly come to kind of become the, the sort of norm and constant of our, uh, of our musical culture more broadly in evangelicalism, and we don't realise, I think, that it's become more, uh, more of a default position for us in how we think about music than we think. But here endeth my little sermon, and we'll move on to the next subject. Unless you want to say I, anything about that. I like that sermon, and I like what you and Philip were saying previously. The congregation is the choir. Some church traditions, the choir is the choir and the congregation actually watches. Now, the music group is the choir. I went to a church the other day. The music was so loud that I'm a loud singer. I love singing and I sing really loudly and it's a great embarrassment for people around about me. But I love it. But I, I gave up. I could not hear myself sing when I was singing at the top of my voice. So I just gave it. This is absolutely no point because the, we weren't singing to one another. We were listening to a, a band. 
There's nothing wrong with listening to a band. I just I thought him singing was about us singing. I want to move on to your ministry. And it is charismatic. You're yeah. right. Yes. Because, you see, the heart of charismatic theology is experientialism. Their commitment is to their experiences, which keep on changing because after four or five years it gets boring. So I need a new one to zap me on. Very sad because it's not Christianity. It, Christianity is a covenantal religion where God gives his word and keeps his word because he is a loving and faithful God. And our task is to have faith in the word of his promise. That's totally different to having current experiences of his presence. Different religion. Now, as you came to the University of New South Wales to preach that different religion, you did something quite strange in 1975, something that nobody else was doing and that you were told wouldn't work and was a stupid idea, and that was you started preaching the Bible on campus. Tell us about that. Yes. The EU that I got kicked out of used to have public lectures each week and then Bible study groups that you joined. That was the pattern from the 30s through to the 60s. By the time I got to New South Wales Uni in the 75, the, the public lecture was there, and what it was was Christianity and, you know, Christianity and abortion, Christianity and euthanasia, Christianity and chemistry, Christianity and... And, of course, most of the lecture was what was on the and rather than on the Christianity. And they got experts in from each area of field to talk, you see. And then the, the Bible study groups had become cell groups another Marxist word, and these cell groups actually were built out of social philosophy on how the dynamics of interpersonal relationships. And so there's no Bible in the Bible study groups. That's why they were cell groups. And so a couple of students, when I first arrived, still thinking like when I'd been an undergraduate, said to me, Philip, there's no Bible study on campus. Would you start one? Now, this is extraordinary. You've got 300 people in the Christian Union and there's no Bible study. So I, I started one. Well, this caused terrible ructions. Um, and from 1975 to 1983, I was not welcome on any Christian Union or evangel- atheist campus of Australia because I'd done the thing that was not supposed to be done. I gave public lectures on the Bible. I was assured that no one could listen for more than 15 minutes on a Bible study. And so I thought, well, they go to lectures all day and they go for 50 minutes. Why can't a Bible study go for 50 minutes? And I'm a better speaker than the lecturers because lecturers are not chosen on the basis of being able to give lectures. They're chosen on the basis of their research. They, by and large, are terrible introspective men, you know. The basic reason that you know the extroverted academic because he looks at your shoes, not his. And so, (laughs) you know, you, you head off to... Just teach the Bible. That's, that's what I was doing. And so um, within, two or th- within a year or two, it took almost no time, frankly, uh, more people were coming to the Bible lectures than were ever going to the public lecture. And so I was accused of being disloyal and uh, against the institution, and there were terrible fights. There were all kinds of fights in those early years um, until Andrew Reid became the AFES um, General, General Secretary, Secretary in Australia. And uh, he brought about a big change to to the whole emphasis of AFES. There were three, I think, or maybe four uh, AFES staff workers in that period of time. 
in Australia. whole of Australia, there's now 300. And none of them, uh, other than Andrew, had a degree in theology. And now they're nearly all graduates of college. I mean, the, the transformation has been enormous. And now expounding the Bible at a lunchtime is, is fairly normal. But it, where did I get that idea? It wasn't because I was clever or strategic or anything like that. It was because I believe in trembling at God's word. What, what is my job? It is to tell God's word. How will I best tell God's word? Well, open it and read it and teach it. That's the best way. Rather than rambling on as an old man like this. <laughs> I was talking about you. Oh, okay. Mm. Um, University of New South Wales, it also brought you into, into conflict, though, with the authorities of the university at various points. And I, I remember one famous incident that I've heard of many times where some students wanted to start a Greek New Testament class and you were put up as the proposed lecturer for that Greek New Testament class. Yeah, I don't know when it was, 78, something like that. In those days, everyone had to do general studies, and, but they, they tried to be inclusive. So you could nominate what general study you wanted to do. Uh, and so some students nominated that they wanted to learn New Testament Greek and they were told, no, there was no one on the campus who could teach it, so they nominated me that I'd do it. And at that stage I was uh, still doing postgraduate work both at London Uni and at, and at New Sydney Uni, the new master's program they had there. And so I had the qualifications to do it, so I said yes. Well, if I'd said I'm going to kill my mother, I couldn't have got much re bigger reaction. They really... They, the whole un the, the, the institution of the university went into overdrive to find reasons why I couldn't do it. They had other people teaching courses on spoons, the history of spoons and forks. They had people who had no academic qualifications at all. And so they kept on saying things like, you've got to have at least this, you know, and I said, I've got that. Oh, you've got to have an office on campus. I've got one. You've got to have, and they kept on giving reasons, and the reasons kept changing. And you know when the reasons keep changing but the result is the same, you know that's stinking, don't you? You know there's problems here. They just kept changing the rules all the time. It was a terrible fight. Um, and so they got me in front of the, all the general studies lecturers one time, and they, they cross-examined me and they really argued. It was awful, two hours or so. And in the end, one man got off his chair, walked over and looked right in my face and yelled at me. And um, great lie, really. He yelled, I'd rather have Adolf Hitler teach the history of Jews than you teach New Testament Greek. <laughs> and then stormed out of the room. You, you realise you're onto a good thing here, aren't you? <laughs> yeah, this is working. And they dragged me up to the Senate. I, I got called a few hours' notice to appear before the University Senate to be examined there. And then they set up a subcommittee to investigate whether it's possible to teach um, New Testament Greek if you've already committed. It was just teaching Greek. It wasn't teaching the New Testament. If you're already committed theologically. And they brought out this printed report on the fact that because I was biased, I couldn't teach it. I went and saw the professor later. He was a Marxist teaching on alienation. <laughs> and I said, well... You know, you're Marxist on alienation. Why can't I, as a Christian, teach on Christianity? He said, because I've got tenure and you haven't, which is a very Marxist answer. Right? And so... I have power and you haven't. That's what it was. And so... But it was the best thing ever happened. It liberated me. Up until that point... Oh, I was only about 30 at the time. Up at that point, I was committed to the educational system of our world. 
I thought getting to university was important. I thought passing exams was important. I thought getting qualifications was important. I thought if you had the degrees, you had the, the, the right, you will have a hearing and people will give it to you. When I saw that I had reached the point of the whole Senate of the university being rattled by me, I realised that my university qualifications and degrees and learning were a complete and utter ridiculous waste of time. And so I removed my university degrees from my uh, CV. I don't, if you look up me in the yearbook, I haven't got any qualifications uh, because I got the one qualification that they were most terrified of, that is teaching the word of God. And so I, I stopped doing my, past, my postgraduate study. I thought that's a waste of my life and time because th- they're not going to listen. That's not going to change any hearts. What is changing hearts that they are really scared of is me teaching the Bible. So I just increased Bible teaching on the campus and I gave up all academic pretensions and I've always thought it's a folly and a stupidity to walk around in those kinds of academic gowns ever since, although for the cause of the gospel in the cathedral I put them on. But uh, (laughs) it was a complete waste of space and time, frankly, because what people will listen to is what the Spirit of God moves in them to tremble at God's word. Now that's got nothing to do with whether I can put doctor in front of a name or canon or dean or anything else. It's got nothing to do with what degrees I have or haven't got. If I can teach God's word faithfully, then God's people will tremble and people will be converted. (laughs) But if I can't teach it faithfully, if I don't live by it myself, nothing's going to happen. Finish with one more personal question. We started talking about the personal battle. I mean, we all, in a sense, battle with uh, the impulse not to tremble at the word. And I just wanted to finish by asking you, at this point in your life, uh, and looking back, um, what's that personal battle like for you? Where has that battle been fought hardest for you in your own soul? I'm not going to go to a public confession. Um, I'll keep it in the generalities. Um, My sinfulness knows no end and as I've got older I am more conscious of my sinfulness than ever not because I am more sinful but because I am having my eyes opened more and more to how sinful I am and so I am in uh, I'm in battle on things that you would be horrified to hear that's what I'm not telling you um because my sinfulness keeps on being exposed to me. So if you, if you think that down the track you will have overcome sin, you know, when as a child, the only people who were naughty were children. You know, adults never were naughty. When you become an adult, they start talking about, aren't they lovely little, pure, innocent children? <laughs> and of course, it's a, it's a nonsense both ways, isn't it? And so I am more conscious and struggling as much, if not more, with my own personal sinfulness today than I ever have. There are certain moments of life where I can show, you know, when I had kids and they were little, uh, some of you know my kids, so you might understand this, I, I had difficulty controlling my temper and I had to work on that particular issue. I mean, there are circumstances of life or whatever it is that change, that the battle's here or the battle's there or the battle's here. But no, it's, the battle is always... And I was deluded to think that I'd made more progress than I have because the older I get, the more I realise the totality of human sinfulness that exists inside me. Which is another aspect, of course, of 
of trembling at his word and, and believing and applying the truth of what God says about us uh, to ourselves. And it's something to praise God for that you see that more clearly as time goes on. And that's what we should all see. Dominic, you're going to finish in prayer for us, brother. Heavenly Father, help us to tremble at your word. Help us to look closely into our own hearts and identify where we can see materialism and to fight against that and give us your spirit. Help us to trust you and to hold the line in these controversies and battles we have uh, within our churches, within our denominations, within our society. We reflect and give thanks to you for the debates and stances that have been taken in the past and thank you for Philip and others uh, who led the evangelical cause and helped standing firm. We think about those distinctions on men and women in ministry and how how those battles have set us up for today. Help us to preach Christ Jesus with confidence. Let us be captive to your word. Let us be people who are prepared to say things are wrong when they're wrong. Thank you for the example that Philip has given us of standing up for the authority of Scripture for decades. Help us in our different ministry responsibilities to teach your word faithfully. And we beg that we and your people might tremble. And we pray this in Christ Jesus' name. Amen.